Well, BabyCenter.com just released their list of the most popular boy names in 2023. And as you glance this over, maybe there are some names on there that will surprise you. Uh, Maybe others, not so much. A few observations. For the first time in five years, Liam is no longer the most popular boy's name. That honor goes to Noah in 2023. Uh, This year's top three baby girls' names are a repeat from last year, Olivia, Emma, and Amelia hanging on to spots one, two, and three. Uh, But the top 10 list has some new additions for boys, Ezra and Luca uh, cracked the top uh, 10. And for girls, Charlotte climbed from nine, interestingly, to number five this year. Uh, But one important observation, sorry, IU men's basketball fans, your team didn't make this top 10 list either. So sorry about that. But uh, Wow, a little dig there, a little jab as we get started today. But hey, names are important, right? Uh, if you're a parent or you hope to be one, uh, one day you've spent some time thinking about the names uh, you might choose, something meaningful, something that's special to you. It could be the name of a parent, it could be the name of another relative, uh, maybe somebody significant in your life. Uh, names are special. Chances are your name has a story behind it. Uh, there's, there's something about it that matters, often carrying a sense of identity and meaning, and so it's important that we get names right. Well, as I mentioned, we're continuing in this uh, series through the Old Testament book of Exodus today, a series called The People of God. Last week, we talked about the power behind God's name and how He's greater than all of our circumstances and that He loves to work through imperfect people like you and me. Today, we're going to be in chapter 5 to start. We're going to see how God intends to make His name known not only to Moses and Aaron, but also to the people of Israel and eventually to Pharaoh and all of Egypt and the rest of the world. And we're going to notice, what we're going to notice here is that all of these different people were faced with a question that we all face when it comes to God, and it's this. Will we trust in the promises associated with God's name, especially when it comes to things like discouragement coming into our life or suffering or, or matters of obedience? Will we trust in the promises of God associated with His name, or will we choose another way? Will we choose our own direction? Well, Exodus chapter 5, just to catch you up, at this point in history, uh, or at this point, Israel has been in slavery now for 400 years in Egypt. We were introduced to Moses, and through a crazy series of events, he ended up in the lap of luxury in Pharaoh's palace where he was raised and educated. But somewhere along the way, he discovered his true identity as an Israelite. Over time, he grew tired and disgusted of watching the Israelite people suffer to the hands of the Egyptians. And so one day, he acted on their behalf, on his own, and killed one of the Egyptian slave masters. But instead of the people rallying around him, the Israelites rejected him. Not only that, Pharaoh was after him now. And so Moses was forced to run for his life. He ended up in the Sinai wilderness, where he's going to spend the next 40 years. And we'll talk about this map a little bit more in the coming weeks. When he was 80 years old, God spoke to him from a burning bush. You know, that should be encouraging for all of us. You know, and even as an 80-year-old man, God is still working through Moses. You know, no matter your age, no matter the season of life that you're in, you keep your life available to God, and he can use any of us in some pretty amazing ways. Exodus 3, 6, here's what he said to him from the burning bush. God said, I am the God of your father, all right, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This revelation from God about his name is significant. God says, 
I am. It's a word. The best that we know to translate it is with the English uh, letters Y-H-W-H, also translated as Yahweh. But it's no, also no coincidence that we translate it as a capital G God, not a little G God. And why is that important? Well, Egypt was full of little G gods, much like our country and our world is today. Like you can make a little G God out of, out of anything you go looking to uh, for your ultimate as a sense of, of satisfaction and, and significance. I mean, anything, anything can be made into a God. Money, uh, the pursuit of fame and success can be made into a little G God. Uh, sex and the pursuit of it, your, your identity and, and how you think about yourself can become a God for you. Things like control or ambition, your, your kids and, and their sports and their activities, any of these can become like little G gods in your life. And what, what God is about to make clear is that He's the one and only God. And that means that, that even the gods of other world religions today are, are nothing more than imposters or, or wannabes, these small G gods. Again, this was a huge problem in Egypt. It was full of little G gods. And, and think about this from this perspective. Think about the impact this would have had on the Israelites. I mean, they've been exposed and confronted with these gods for 400 years, the last 400 years. And so, of course, that exposure is going to rub off on them. That's why some have said that, that God not only needed to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but he needed to get Egypt out of them. And he's going to use the wilderness. He's going to use that time to get Egypt out of them so that all of their focus and their attention will be on him. What God wanted for Moses and what he wants for Israel is what he wants for you and me too. You know, whether you're a kid or a student, no matter who you are, like he wants to be your one and only, the only God of our lives. That's what it means to be the people of God, even today. And that's what he wants for us. And so this episode at the burning bush was meant to show Moses that God is in control, that his name is great, and it will be great for all people, including starting with the people of Israel. And look at how God describes his relationship, his character, his heart with the people of Israel in these next verses, uh, Exodus 3, 7, and 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. And so he's beginning to make the power of his name known. Add to that, he's revealing the truth of his character. The big question, though, will be how will the people respond? And look at how the Israelites first responded when Moses and Aaron, they come back uh, to Egypt to be with the Israelites first before going to Pharaoh. It's at the end of Exodus chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 29 for a moment. We read, now Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped him. Now, this is important, so make sure you notice what's happening here. They heard from Moses and they, it says, believed and they worshiped. That sounds like a good start, all right, for Moses. That sounds like it's good for his self-esteem. 
Keep that in mind as we jump into chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And so Moses and Aaron, they delivered a message to Pharaoh from God. And so this is God's first pass at letting Pharaoh know who he is and who these people belong to. And then there's this festival that Moses notes. Uh, Philip Rikens, a scholar theologian, he, he notes an ancient Egyptian manuscript on display today at the Louvre in France that dates back to the time of Ramses II, which indicates that Egyptian slaves were sometimes given off time from work in order to worship their gods, sort of like a national holiday or something. And so Moses and Aaron request here isn't totally unheard of. But look at Pharaoh's response to them, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? And why should I obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I'd like to think that Moses and Aaron were cautiously optimistic going into this little confrontation. Maybe Pharaoh would let them go, but not Pharaoh. He's too arrogant. He's too stubborn. Pharaohs back then were considered gods themselves. Add to it, their faith system, as we've pointed out, incorporated many small G gods. Are we surprised that Pharaoh has a really high view of himself and very low regard for Yahweh? By the way, we're going to see how God is going to confront many of these small G gods with each of the plagues. As you read this week and as we talk about next Sunday, everyone in Egypt is going to get a front row seat to who the real God is. Is Pharaoh going to let them go? No way. And so not only is he denying the request, but he's also challenging God's claim that the Israelites belonged to him. Verse 3, then they, Moses and Aaron, said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Again, Pharaoh, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And so Moses and Aaron repeat the request, but this time they warn that the denying the request will mean severe consequences, which seems like a pretty bold way, if you would, to challenge the most powerful man in the world at the time. But more importantly, it serves as a warning and foreshadowing of the judgment God is eventually going to bring upon Pharaoh and all of the people of Egypt who reject him. And so Pharaoh, at this point at least, he's not alarmed. He's not listening. Verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, verse 8, but require them to make the number, same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God, verse 9, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Remember this, Moses and Aaron aren't just trying to convince Pharaoh, but they're also trying to earn favor and influence with the Israelites. This change in working conditions is not going to help. It's not going to help their case. And so Pharaoh's going to make life harder for the Israelites. Add to it, he accused the Israelites of being lazy and also accused their God of being a lighter. I think it's fair to say that this is a bad day for the Israelites, and this is a really bad day for Moses and Aaron who are simply trying to be obedient to what God has asked them to do. And if I could for just a moment, it reminds me a little bit 
of what we're experiencing more and more as Christians and as a church in America today. Now, true, we're somewhat protected in that we're in the Midwest, especially here in central Indiana, but I think we all know and maybe have experienced in different ways that there's this growing sense of pressure and pushback against followers of Jesus, what we believe, and how those beliefs influence the way we live. I'm thinking especially about our kids and about our students and much of the anti-Christian agenda and opposition they face each and every day, from peers to social media to education. I was listening to a Christian college professor share the other day. He has degrees from two Ivy League schools as well as Oxford. He previously taught at one of the most prestigious universities in the U.S., but knew it was time for him to move on from his faculty and his department when they made known that they had collectively decided that they would do everything in their power to make atheists out of students, particularly Christians. And he went on to explain how this is becoming so common and so evident in higher education today. It's a reminder for us that we need to be praying for our young people. All right, that we need to be praying for our educators too, especially those who are following Jesus and serving in our schools and serving in our colleges. Moms and dads at the same time, don't take for granted your role as the primary disciple maker in your kids' lives. Like teach and train your, your children to, to follow Jesus and to trust God's word. Get your kids now involved in things like Gen Kids here in our student ministry. Like, don't take for granted the beautiful things that God can do uh, through a church family and your participation in it. And before you lead them out the door to a college or a university or some other something similar, pray, pray with them and ask the Lord to lead you and to lead your kids to the place that He has prepared for them. Because if it hasn't happened already, somewhere along the way, someone is going to challenge the why behind your faith and like Pharaoh, question God's existence. And in those moments, you know, like with Moses and with others, you and I are going to be faced with the question, will I trust God? Am I going to cling to his promises? All right. Am I going to cling to my faith? Or am I going to turn away from him? It reminds me of the words, you probably know them, from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, when we read, Trust in the Lord your God with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, meaning in everything you do, acknowledge him. And he says he'll make our paths straight. He's going to make them clear for us. Remember how the Israelites responded at the end of chapter 4 when God revealed himself through Moses and Aaron? What were the two words again? They believed and they worshiped. Well, tensions are rising now. Skip over to verse 19, Exodus chapter 5, verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. And so when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. That was just a few days after they believed and worshiped. And look at how Moses, or look at Moses' response to them. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And so Moses questions God's goodness. He questions his purpose. He's questioning his actions, this whole plan, by the way, 
And he's probably wondering to himself, why is my obedience only making things worse? And can you blame him? Because, man, I do it. I mean, if I were in his shoes, I'd complain too. I'd have questions as well. But let's look at it from another perspective for a moment. Because on a positive note, at least he's taking his questions and his doubts to God. And that's encouraging because if you've ever had doubts or if you've ever cried out to God, Moses did too. And not just Moses, but the Psalms are a great example. I mean, the Psalms are a roller coaster of emotions, honest, you know, prayers from people in pain, people expressing their questions, their complaints, their doubts. Even Jesus, the night before he died, poured out his heart to God. And so that said, don't be afraid to take your hurt and your pain and your questions before God. You don't have to pose for him. I mean, you don't have to hold back. Like your questions and emotions and doubts aren't inappropriate as long as they're humble, as long as they're honest, as long as they're faithful. But why? Like why the resistance? Like sure, it's taken Moses a while to come around, but why is this so hard? Like why are things going from bad to worse? Like you've been there though, right? We've all been there. Like you commit yourself to obedience, but things only get more difficult or the waiting, we all know the pain of waiting and how excruciating it can be. And sometimes, sometimes things actually go from bad to worse before they even seem to improve. And you know that. Like you know that if you've ever walked through recovery with somebody, you know all of the ups and downs of, of that journey. Some of you uh, are, are feeling that if, if you've exhausted every option trying to get pregnant. Some of you are single and you're, you're tired of waiting and sometimes you want to take matters into your own hands, compromise and meet your own needs. Some of you are trying to be really courageous. You're trying to be really bold as, uh, about your faith in Jesus, maybe at school and lately it feels like everyone is opposing you or pushing back on you. Some of you have made some bold uh, moves in your career, and because of it, nothing's going your way. Some of you have adopted or fostered, and it challenged you in ways that nobody could have ever prepared you for. Others of you, maybe you made a decision back in November to, to practice giving in generosity, but since you started, it's been one financial disaster after another. The painful lesson, lesson is that obeying God doesn't guarantee a pain-free, problem-free life. Like sometimes things don't turn out the way we hoped or we don't get what we've prayed for, but it doesn't mean that God isn't in control or that he's not looking or that he's any less sovereign. The truth is that God can use our times of discouragement, the questions that we have, the pain that we endure, even the wilderness that we go through as a way of drawing us even closer to Him and revealing more and more about Himself. And it doesn't mean, though, that He'll answer all of our questions, but He does want to hear them, and He will care for us, and He can sustain us in ways like we could never do on our own, especially when life is hard and it doesn't make sense. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares for you. Why do we have troubles? Why do we have problems? I don't fully understand, and I wish it weren't the case, but I'm grateful for a personal, loving, all-powerful God who isn't going to make you and me go through it alone. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you will see 
what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Just take note of those phrases there. Maybe underline them in your Bible. Now you will see and in the mighty hand. It's repeated twice here and later in verse 6 as God's going to make reference to his outstretched arm, which is a symbol of his power and his sovereignty over all things. Verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I didn't make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites who the, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. When he says, I am the Lord, he's using the personal name, Yahweh, all right, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word Yahweh here. He's also, he also refers to himself, as you see, as God Almighty which in Hebrew is the Hebrew word El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's a word that means God Almighty. It's meant to remind us of God's power, especially in our weaknesses. And so in other words, God's telling Moses, I am both personal and sovereign and almighty over all things at the very same time. And then on two occasions, God refers to the covenant he previously made with the forefathers of the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sally Lloyd-Jones defines covenant as the always and forever love of our God. Isn't that sweet? It's the always and forever, never-changing, never-ending love of God. It's a word that means promise, covenant does. So basically, God is saying, Moses, I realize you feel beat up. I realize things don't make sense to you, and I realize you might be discouraged about your obedience, but I want to remind you of the power behind my name and my commitment to always keep my promises. I am an always and forever promise-keeping sword of God. And then God Almighty Yahweh El Shaddai says this, take note of all of these I will statements beginning in verse 6. He says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Man, we could spend so much time on these. We won't, but God makes seven powerful I will statements. And here's something that's kind of cool. Each of these I will statements are in the past perfect tense, which means God is saying both I have and I will. Basically, it has already been determined, and I'm just simply working it out. I can't not keep my promises. God says, I have and I will. Basically, in his mind, they've already been accomplished. It's what we mean by saying he is a promise-making, promise-keeping covenant God. And here's what's interesting. These I wills, they're not just for the Israelites, but they're true for us, for you and me today. Because as we've touched on already, Exodus is so much more than a historical book. With it and with these I will statements, we're watching the salvation story really unfold. That what God is doing for the Israelites is what He has already done and accomplished for us. And so, to the question, how do we persevere through times of difficulty, of personal discouragement? 
Well, like Moses and the people of Israel, we learn to trust by clinging and hanging on to the promises of God, specifically those that remind us that we're no longer slaves to sin and death, but we are free people in Jesus Christ, that we are free people. We are the people of God. We are free in Him. Look at these, Exodus chapter 6 again, verse 6, the first part there. God says again to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will free you from being slaves to them. He says, I will bring you out, all right, and I will free you. There's a word here, write this down if you're taking notes, it's the word liberation. All right, this is what God is talking about here. He's talking about liberation. For Israel, this is a picture and a promise of God's plan to bring his people out, as he promised, as a covenant-keeping God, bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, but it's not just for Israel then. If you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, this is a reminder for us that what God has done for you in Jesus, that he freed you from slavery to sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we know then that Egypt represents a place of slavery and death and a place of of no hope, but God is gonna work through Moses to lead his people out of this place of death and hopelessness to a place of freedom and hope in him. And so for those of you, again, that have put your faith, placed your faith and trust in the Lord and Jesus Christ. He's done that for you. You are free. You are free in Jesus Christ, which means we have hope that even when life gets difficult or discouraging, we remember our hope. We remember that we are free, liberated people. Look at the second half of verse 6 there. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And so God's next I will reminds us of the word redemption. Write that word down. It's the word redemption. What's his promise for Israel? He says, I will redeem you. This is one of the first uses of this word in this context in Scripture. It's a financial term that was used to describe the release of a slave once and for all by the payment of a ransom. And so God's promise to redeem the Israelites in Egypt is a picture of how he would eventually redeem or purchase our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross. Friends, this is the gospel. All right, this is the good news being played out before our eyes. The good news is that Jesus Christ paid the price for for our sins with his death so that instead of, of, of suffering death apart from God one day, we can know the promise of his presence with us now and forever, the promise of eternal life with God after we die. I think you can see why Exodus is sometimes called the gospel of the Old Testament, because like God's promise to save Israel, we live on the other side of his promise and the work that has already been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. But how does all of this get us through, especially especially if you're in a time of discouragement or suffering or struggle, a wilderness of your own. Look at verse seven. He says again, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And so these next two I wills are connected and speak of God's promise to adopt his people as his very own. He says, I will take you as my own people and I'm going to be your God. The word that comes to light here is the word adoption. And God's going to do that for Israel. And the events at Mount Sinai, which we'll get to in a few weeks, will bring greater light to his work of adoption. But man, what a beautiful picture for us today. That when God redeems us, we receive the full rights and privileges of adoption into his family. And that can serve to help us so that we can know God better, but also as a perfect heavenly father. And because he's a perfect heavenly father, we know that he's watching out for us. 
in all things. Because he's a perfect heavenly father, we know that he's full of wisdom and direction for our lives. And as a perfect heavenly father, we can find confidence and strength from being in his continuous presence and under his protection. And as a good and perfect heavenly father, we can find peace in knowing that he's in control. Friends, let me say it again. No matter what you're going through right now in your life, no matter the questions you're trying to solve or figure out, the season you might be in, the path that you might be on in this particular wilderness, he's in control. He knows the way through. He invites us to trust him. Verse 8, he says, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. These next two I wills speak to the promise of an inheritance. As Moses speak, or as God speaks to Moses in Israel, he says, I'm, I'm going to bring you to the land I swore to your forefathers, and I'm going to give it to you as a possession. And the book of Exodus, and what we're going to begin to see over the next few weeks, is only the beginning of the journey that God would lead the Israelites on to take possession of the land that he had promised to their forefathers as an inheritance, which is great if you're an Israelite. But what if you're not? What if you're not Jewish? How does this promise of inheritance apply to the rest of us today as Christians? Well, God answered that through one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, who wrote these words for us from God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, look what he does for us, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter shows us here that our hope as Christians is that through faith in Jesus, we would see and understand that we have been given a new life, a living hope, and an internal, eternal inheritance available to us now, but also, again one day, an even greater measure with God in heaven. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And it's what's been prepared and is waiting for you if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God offers the same things to you. It's his gift, his invitation to you. Like God's freedom and salvation is available to you as well. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, how do we respond and receive that great love and salvation from the Lord? He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I also want to remind those of you, of us today, who have trusted Jesus you call yourself a Christian, but maybe find yourself today in a time of pain, a time of waiting, a time of discouragement or healing in your life. Can I just remind you, remind us today that the good news of Jesus Christ is still true, and it's still good, and it still matters, and sometimes we tend to overlook that, the power of that good news in our lives, even today. 
I wonder if any of you ever take the time to read the terms and agreement section of any contract that you sign. I'm, I'm thinking of phone service plans, uh, maybe an insurance policy that you take out, maybe renting a car. I don't know if anybody's like that or not. I'm not, all right? I'm just taking a chance, right? Taking their, their word for it. But Danelle and Andrews, is, who's pictured here, uh, is sure glad she did. Uh, and she does it all the time. In fact, she describes herself as a nerd, always reading the terms and the agreement, no matter what it is, including a recent travel insurance policy that she signed. She printed out her policy. She sat down at the table to read through every word of it, every single page, the whole thing. And wouldn't you know it, she came across this fine print message. It said this, this is a contest that rewards the individual's who actually read their policy information to start from finish. If you are the first to contact us, you may be awarded the pays-to-read contest grand prize of $10,000. So she took a chance. She wrote the insurance company immediately. Wouldn't you know it, she got a call back the next day to let her know she had won $10,000. The contest was to go for a year. They were only 23 hours in. She said, the main reason I always do it is that in college, I majored in consumer economics. She says, it's always been a passion of mine to stay aware. The company estimates only about 1% of its customers actually read the policies. Andrews, who is soon to retire, said she plans to use the prize money to fund a trip to Scotland for her 35th wedding anniversary. Isn't she so glad she read the policy? Sometimes... Even as Christians, we forget, and we fail to remember what's true and is still true and has changed everything forever and for always. Someone once said one of the best things we can do as Christians is preach the good news to ourselves every single day. We are liberated, redeemed, adopted. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ and all the power and promises that come with it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ, that you sent him, Lord, that he obediently and willingly gave up his life on the cross to redeem our lives, that you raised him from the dead and that he reigns today, that victory is ours. We thank you that you are a God that is sovereign over all things, but you're so personal too. And you care about each and every one of us and our circumstances and the things that we're going through. And you're always going to keep your promises. And you have all the power and wisdom and love that we could ever need. May that be true of each of us today. And may we leave here encouraged in our faith to trust you with all the things all the things that we go through. We praise you. Thank you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.